When you work in the ER, death almost becomes part of the job. I mean, these are people who I never met before. I have no connection to them. I know nothing about their life. It's amazing how that can become sort of a normal part of the job. Like doing CPR on patients, trying to, let's say, revive them is also, it's a very mechanical thing. But often if we give up, the CPR has failed. And then the family comes in and they're crying. Of course, it's one of the worst days of their life. And then the emotion often just hits you like a big wave, just like a reminder that this, this was a person who had a life and people loved them and now, they're, and now they're dead. And a lot of people's lives will never be the same. Who are you? <laughs> My name is Jonathan Reisman. I'm a doctor and an author, among other things, although I have a lot of interests. I love traveling the world and I would say... I am someone who is curious about absolutely everything and knowing where everything comes from and how it got to be the way it is. Okay. Uh, first uh, question. Does coffee kill you? No, the opposite. I think, uh, well, I'm hesitant to make any definitive statements as a doctor because doctors have a history of making very wrong statements, but with absolute certainty. But there are many studies, you know, we love studies as doctors. There's many studies that show that, ca that coffee is beneficial, that it protects you and makes you live longer. I'm not prepared to say that, but I will say if there's that many studies, it's probably not bad for you. I'll conclude that at least. It's probably not bad for you. Oh, okay. And I love it and drink it kind of all day. So. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's because you are biased, you're confirmation bias that you need to. <laughs> I'm sure that's part of it. <laughs> so uh, today I want to talk a bit about uh, our evolution, uh, of our, the evolution of our body through the years, and also like to some nutrition and what's your take on a lot of uh, questions that I have about nutritioning. So uh, let's, can you give me a brief description of how our body evolved uh, in, in like what's the vital uh, organs of our body and like what is interesting about our body? Well, I think we evolved over millions of years. Uh, there's two important aspects to evolution. One is sex and the other is death. So the basic equation is who has sex and has children and who dies before they're able to do that. So basically that we are the way we are because of who got laid and who, did it, who didn't. That's my uh, summary of evolution. Uh, but I think that I think a lot of every aspect of our body, every vital organ, every bodily fluid, every function that our body does evolved over millions of years based on what helped us have sex and not die, I would say. Uh, is the summary. But there's so many vital organs. Where do you even start? Uh, from the heart to the brain and then in digestion alone, you know, everything in your mouth from your tongue, esophagus, stomach, intestines, large intestines, pancreas, liver, spleen. I can go on. Everything plays its that, role and everything that, has a purpose. Does our, body have, uh, does our body have any difference than the monkey, that the chimpanzees, or is like any big major differences? Uh, I would say two major differences is our brains and our hands, because our hands are very uh, adapted to holding tools, and that helped us tinker with things and invent technology. So that was a big thing. And then our brain also has a very problem-solving ability. Animals do too, and some animals use tools. Birds use tools, even though they don't have hands. 
Uh, many primates use tools, but certainly humans have taken the problem-solving aspects of cognition and the tool-holding aspects of having hands to a much greater uh, extreme, obviously, than every other animal. Okay. Interesting. So what nutrition, how nutrition played a role in our evolution? Do you think it was a vital uh, uh, part of us being humans, evolving as humans? I think nobody knows for sure. There's a lot of theories going around. Everyone likes to make ideas about what we should eat, what we're supposed to eat, what we used to eat before modern life changed everything. I, I Just like with coffee, I won't conclude anything definitively, though I think some ideas really make sense. I think I think almost more important than what we ate was how we got it. So we, perhaps in a ver the very diff distant past, our ancestors mostly lived in trees and ate a lot of fruit. And then at some point, we our ancestors came out of the trees and started hunting on the plains or the savannas of Africa. And we started walking on just our hind legs and started that freed up our hands to do all kinds of things like pick up and invent hunting weapons. And I think hunting in particular, which is uh, historically a very kind of uh, group based strategy, I think that it played a large role in the problem solving that we're able to do. Like even when you talk to specialists who study whales, they'll tell you that the, the baleen whales who just go around grazing on krill, they're almost like cows and have a similar intelligence as where the hunting whales, the orcas and others um, seem to be much smarter. At least that's what whale specialists have told me. And I think the same is, is true in humans as well. So you think that our intelligence evolved because of hunting? I think that played a big role in it, actually. I mean, there's so much problem solving that goes into hunting, not only understanding the psychology of other animals, uh, but outsmarting them, literally. You know, outsmarting a fruit hanging on a tree is not so hard. It can't get away from you or it can't hear you coming. But other animals who, some of which are as or almost as intelligent as us, Getting close enough to them, even before we had projectiles like guns, bows and arrows and things, you know, you had to get very close to these animals and therefore without scaring them away. And they're often much faster than people. So I think that a lot of uh, a lot of our intelligence throughout history has been applied to that problem. How do I get close enough to this animal to kill it? Um, and so whether the chicken or the egg, I don't know if that's why we are the way we're smart the way we are, but at least I would say a large proportion, nearly all of human intelligence throughout the last million years have been applied to that precise problem. And, and does maybe consciousness emerge because of that reason or something? It's a good question. Uh, well, perhaps I'm just making stuff up here completely, but understanding the psychology of other animals, some of whom are very smart, and have much better senses than us leads you to think about how animals think. So it seems a very small step to go from that to wondering how we ourselves think. And uh, that reflection is certainly a big part of, of consciousness, wondering why we do what we do, why we live the way we live. So I think answering those questions of daily survival over the last million years set us up pretty well to ask the bigger questions about consciousness. But 
we can't know, right? Because like, I don't know if you have consciousness. So it, <laughs> never, <laughs> so it's, it's difficult. It's a tricky question to ask about if it emerged because of hunting. But uh, the, the other question that I was thinking while we were talking, maybe the language evolved uh, in humans because of hunting as well. So that's probably. I do think certainly it played a role in hunting. Uh, you know, for much of history, humans often hunting things much larger than themselves, much faster and stronger than themselves, uh, often hunted in groups. And so the language required uh, much of it probably signaling and other things that don't always require words. But since you're being very quiet when you hunt, not only that, but eating communally, you know, uh, eating as a group and sharing with each other, not to mention uh in, in much of history, we probably ate the meal right when the animal fell down, right there. But at some point, we started carrying that food back to where we lived in a group. Uh, we started having a place that we normally eat and eating as a group and sharing things so that everyone got their part. And so I think that not only communal hunting, but communal eating and communal storing food, protecting the food from scavengers that want to steal it from you. Uh, I think was probably a big part of, of language as well. I, um, I want to make uh, one point here that food is, pro is the most fundamental uh, thing for our survival. I did 30 days with no food <laughs> and I felt horrible. I thought that every single day I was going to die. I didn't have energy to do anything. So I, I'm just rephrasing that how important food is for our energy of every day and for us to evolve as humans to do stuff, to be creative, how vital is food. So that's why this conversation is the most, the most important conversation that we can have in our life because everything, if you don't have the fundamental hierarchy of Maslow, like food and, and all this stuff, it doesn't work, right? <laughs> right. I mean, breathe, breathing is also fundamental, but breathing's easy because you just do it and the air is always there. Uh, the same thing with excreting. Yes, it's nice to have a place where you go to the bathroom, keep things clean, but nothing's stopping you from doing it anywhere. Food, on the other hand, it takes thought, it takes planning, it takes cooperation between people. Uh, it takes being civilized in a way because you, you can't just keep all the food for yourself and not feed your family, your children. So there's some in inherent thing about sharing in there as well. So I think a lot of uh, eating is probably a huge factor in what made us the way we are. I agree with you. I, w I was going to ask a bit uh, a question about, so I always uh, take back when I have a question about what is the right food to eat, I ask, okay, how people before how the hunter gatherers did it before 50 years ago 50,000 years ago is, is that the right methodology to go and find what is right for us to eat for our bodies or this is completely wrong and how do you think of what's that what is the method that you use to think what is right or wrong to eat i think that's a really good question and i i generally take the same approach i think what did people eat 10,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago. But also, and, and I think, you know, hunter-gatherers certainly ate meat, but I think they ate, and people throughout history and prehistory ate whatever they could find. And so that was probably a little bit of everything, whether that's animals, plants, fungi, everything. Uh, and I think also the body 
in a way, can tell us uh, what we not, I don't like saying what we're supposed to eat, but in a way, it's what our body is sort of designed to eat by evolution. You know, some people say we should be eating mostly meat or all meat, perhaps. I, I'm not sure I buy anything like that. I don't buy any, any extreme. We should be eating only this or only that. I think people can eat everything. For instance, in our saliva is an enzyme called salivary amylase that breaks down starch. And starch is almost exclusively found in plants, especially roots. So you could say our body is certainly designed to eat starch, um, which sort of goes against a pure carnivore diet. And that being said, I think our intestines are clearly designed to be able to handle just about everything. And to me, that's the main thing is that we are very flexible. Uh, people, I know people who are vegans who are healthy and thrive, and I know people who are on an all-meat diet who are healthy and thrive. And so I think the human gut is very adaptable and can adapt to a wide variety of things, which doesn't tell you what's ideal for each individual human. Perhaps there's differences between individuals, even within the same family. But I think uh, adaptability is, is kind of the main factor. But the problem with when I do this uh, exercise of what things existed before 50,000 years ago, like most of the stuff that we have here didn't exist the way that, uh, that existed 50,000 years ago. And the bananas were not that big and yellow and like the watermelon were not that huge and all this stuff. So how do you navigate this world with uh, it's a great question. I think it's very hard, and I think modern humans are just figured, still not figured uh, figured that out. And uh, you know, we you took us from ninety, let's say ninety nine million years of uh, food scarcity, and now we've had a few years of food excess. And clearly, our bodies don't know what to do with it, and we don't know what to do with it or how to control our appetites. I think we face problems that humans have never really faced before. Uh, not that we should complain. I mean, in some ways, it's better than food scarcity and starvation, for sure. Uh, but I think that uh, it's very difficult to know. I mean, at some point in history, we didn't even have fire. So we were eating all meats raw. We probably were having a lot. I'm not even sure how you can eat roots without cooking them, like a potato. I mean, perhaps you can pound it, pound it into a powder almost and eat it that way. Uh, but fire changed everything. I haven't seen anyone suggest we go back to the human diet before we had fire. So fire was a big part of of us fitting uh, fitting our, ourselves and being able to do other things as well, like to for us to cook meat, to cook and to so from is from like a hundred choices that we had food to eat with fire, it went to like one thousand choices. At least. And even even 100 years ago was much different than today. I like to point out the kinds of oils and fats that we currently use for cooking, for putting on salad, for whatever purpose. Even 100 years ago, uh, let's say in the US, you basically had butter and pig fat, lard. Uh, and that was mostly what you had to choose from. But today you go into a grocery store and you see an unbelievable number of choices of various plants plant oils uh, that come from all around the world. And I think people have never had that choice before. And the same goes in every area of food, whether it's protein, carbs, nutrients, fruits. We, we have so many choices that people never had. But I do think fire was a big one. I think hunting was a big change. Fire was a big change and agriculture were a big change. I think those, in my mind, are the, what, three of the biggest changes uh, in what humans have eaten over the history and prehistory.
it's very it's 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 a very tricky topic because the, uh, do you think the science that that we have can really tell us what's the right thing to eat uh, for sure and now and the studies that we have and we can be certain on what's the right diet to do or we I'm, I'm very skeptical of nutrition advice from doctors, but also from just about everybody. I think, I think the extremes are clear. You know, the extremes as a doctor, for instance, if you're deficient in some vitamin, clearly that's a problem because it causes all kinds of disease in the body and all kinds of problems. So clearly the diet that lacks all the essential vitamins and nutrients the body needs, that's not good. Uh, but then if you have, let's say, just um, Doritos that are supplemented with all the vitamins and minerals you eat, and that's all you eat all day, sure, you're getting all those vitamins and minerals, but clearly that diet's not going to be very good for you. Um, you. It might lack in other things. So I think in general, though, between the extremes, it's very hard to parse out. I think a lot of things doctors have said you shouldn't eat or you should eat uh, have been called into question, and so I'm hesitant to, to say anything. Clearly, you shouldn't eat things with uh, disease-causing microbes, that's for sure. And you shouldn't, uh, and I think just a variety of different kinds of food is best. That being said, if someone wants to go vegan, if someone wants to try a carnivore diet, I wouldn't tell them not to. I think it's good to experiment. We're in an age where we're questioning all the dogma that were passed down to us, especially by the medical community. I certainly question everything that I hear about nutrition from what from doctors because we have been very wrong in the past. And I think it's good to start from the beginning, not from the very beginning, but from uh, you know closer to the beginning than we thought we were a few decades ago, perhaps. I think that's good. And I think we're going to learn a lot over the coming decades. Interesting. You mentioned uh, that, uh, that everyone is, is different as well. And so uh, do, is the best approach maybe to reverse engineer your own body and how do you feel about things to test? Because maybe one thing that works for my body, it will not work for your body. So like if I, for example, if I enjoy the vegetarian diet, maybe you, your body needs different things to function. So is it, is the right thing? The rule of thumb is test it and see how do you feel? I think so. I mean, I, I think that uh, I, I don't have any strong advice that people not experiment with their diets as long as it's safe and healthy and getting, getting them all the vitamins and nutrients they need. I don't see why not. Like I said, I know vegans who have never felt better and I know carnivores who have never felt better. I wouldn't even begin to try to explain why that is, why uh, different people feel differently. I think a lot of, a lot of genetics go into that. Genetics... Uh, as well as differences in physiology, perhaps differences in psychology as well. So I, I think uh, people should try and see what makes them feel the best. There's also ways of measuring health, right? It's not just about how you feel, but if diets are um, making you, let's say, gain weight or become resistant to insulin or get high blood pressure, high cholesterol, etc., that raises some questions. Uh, they're not deal breakers, but certainly that raises some questions that I think the diet, you know, not only how you feel, but objective measures of health are also good as well. So how do you know that you are eating well? Like how a normal person, like uh, 
stupid person like me or no there is a that i'm less than the average person in this in cleverness but a person like an average everyday person that like should how I, he can check his um his uh, diet uh, how he can check if his diet is is good Well, I guess there's a few different ways. I mean, I think how you feel, your energy level, your sleep, your weight, these are all good things. Uh, I think there are other medical measurements of how the body is doing. For instance, if you're eating a diet very deficient in B12 or iron or folate, you could develop anemia, which is a low number of red blood cells. Surely, And that, that is surely an objective measure that your body is lacking in some essential nutrients. So I think there are... Uh, there are objective measures such as those things, which doesn't mean that if all your blood work is normal, your diet is healthy, end of story. I don't believe there's that certainty with medical tests. But I, I do believe medical tests are part of the picture of how healthy your diet is. And medical tests is like basically doing a blood test and understanding like how your vitals are and how, what... Uh, This is what you mean. And so it's good to maybe check yourself maybe once a year, like uh, on this stuff. Like, do you have any that rule of thumb stuff, anything that you think it will be interesting for people to measure and how they measure it? They go to the doctor. There is a lot of labs because I, I don't know, as a, as a normal person, I'm, I don't know where should I go and what is the right thing to do. So it's maybe you. <laughs> right. Well, you, as you know, I'm very biased being a doctor although I'm perhaps more skeptical uh, than many doctors of what the medical establishment has to say. But certainly, I think getting your blood counts checked, you know, if your sugar is high, that suggests that you're having an issue with insulin um, and you could be developing type 2 diabetes. There's a blood test for that called the HbA1c, which is sort of a measurement of your glucose level over three months in one, in one blood test. Certainly that going up is a suggestion that there might be an issue with your diet. You might start to see slightly elevated liver enzymes like an AST or an ALT, which are blood tests we do for the liver. That could be a sign of fatty liver disease where fat starts to accumulate in the liver. That, that goes together with sort of type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol, kidney disease, all part of the what we call the metabolic syndrome, which is sort of an amalgamation of what modern life and modern diet does to your body and, and we're not we're in the beginning stages of kind of understanding how that happens but it they all seem to be part of it and so you can see changes like that you could see start to see your kidney numbers becoming abnormal specifically there's two tests a BUN and a creatinine those are blood tests <coughs> excuse me you could start to see uh, some protein in your urine which could be a sign that your kidneys are becoming damaged I would say there's there's a lot of these little tests. These are all blood tests that a doctor would probably do on you. And every year, maybe every year may not be necessary at your young age, Phidias, but perhaps as you get older, um, especially if you have pre-existing medical conditions, the more frequent uh, blood tests may be better. Uh, but I think there is a problem with that. Maybe it's not a problem. You can tell me I'm wrong, but... We don't we we don't have a good doctor around us most of the time because most of the doctors you said they are training different uh, school of thought than questioning the thing and they just go or oh, maybe do these or the wrong things that science presents the new science presents so uh, 
is do you think that's a problem you think we should listen to every doctor go to a couple of doctors and show our vitals maybe we can upload it to chat gbt and that would be a better <laughs> well i do think that most doctors the large majority of doctors when doing regular screening checks such as vital signs and blood tests they would do all the same tests i believe i think the difference might be in how they interpret it but also in how they recommend you respond to it so some will say increase exercise some will say change your diet in this way or that way and there's a or this is a pill take it yeah, obviously <laughs> doctors love pills of course um But uh, yeah, so, or just throw pills at the problem, which is another thing that doctors like to do. So I, I think that the testing would be similar and the interpretation of what test is, result is normal and abnormal would be very similar among the large majority of, of uh, traditional, like mainstream doctors. But perhaps how they then respond to it and how they recommend you ch either change your diet, change your exercise, your lifestyle, or just take a pill. I think that would be the big difference. Do you like pills? Um, I love pills, uh, but specific ones. I mean, I'm, a, I'm mostly an ER doctor. So when people come to the ER, it's not for, I mean, it's for acute complications, let's say, of chronic illness, but it's not for their yearly check. It's not for their cholesterol or, or weight gain or depression. It's more for something acutely happening, some emergency or urgency, not always super emergent. Um, but I give pills out and IV medications or intramuscular IM injections basically all day, every day that I work. So, I mean, I, I think they're great when they're needed. You know, if someone comes in with anaphylaxis and their throat is closing, I think a shot of epinephrine in their arm is about the best thing on earth uh, and many other pills too. So I think it depends on the situation. And, I, you know, I guess there's, there's life-saving and sort of which happens in the ER a lot. And, and it's the, the beneficial effect of medication is so clear in many cases there. People having asthma attacks, people having heart attacks, uh, people who can't breathe, all these sorts of things. So in the ER world medicine, the benefits are so obvious to me. In the primary care world where people are trying to get the best long-term health, uh, diet, exercise, etc., then some things may be uh, called into question there, I think more readily. Where do you draw the line of the pills? Like when a pill is needed and when a pill is not needed and how? That is a great question. Do, and do you mean in the emergency room or in the kind of primary care doctor's General, office? Generally, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if, uh, I guess I'm biased to the emergency room. If someone comes in with an urgent problem, I think pills are great. And I think even if, you know, a lot of times I'm making decisions in the ER where it's not clear if it will help or not, but, but I have to do something. And so I give a lot of medicines, not sure if they're going to help or not. So there's a lot of ambiguity there uh, when you're making decisions in the kind of emergency situation. Uh, because it's an emergency uh, situation. So you need to do something. So if you are like even 20%, you think this the thing will help him, like it's better because an emergency to give it to him instead of not giving to him. This Correct, yes. So if I think the benefits will are higher than the risks, then I, I'm often giving medication. Um, in the, you know, the office, it's, it's harder to say. 
every pill or every medication, you know, studies show that they have a number needed to treat. So if you're giving a statin for high cholesterol, the number needed to treat tells you how many people do you have to give a statin to in order to help one person. It's not one to one. It's not that everyone who gets a statin is going to be benefited by it. I would say few medicines are that perfect. So in, in a way, you're still playing the odds, even when you're managing chronic diseases in a primary care office. But you didn't answer to me where you draw the line. <laughs> I would say the line always depends on the situation, the patient, uh, the medicine. But I would say when the, when the benefits outweigh the risks, it's probably worth taking the medicine. Um, but also when to take it in, in an urgent situation or emergent situation, you should probably take it right away. In chronic situations, perhaps we're often waiting. Let's see. Uh, maybe things will get better on their own. Maybe try a couple of different things if you have time. Uh, ask questions, different people. What do you think about this medicine? What do you think? And do some research. Yes. Exactly. And even in the emergency room, a lot of times it's not clear if someone needs a medicine. So for instance, let's say someone has a rash. I think it's a infection with a bacteria, a bacterial infection. But most of the time I'm certain it is or it isn't. Sometimes I'm not sure. Or for instance, an ear infection in a child. Most of them are caused by viruses and will go away without antibiotics. Sometimes I can tell right when I look in a child's ear, is this a bacterial infection, a viral infection? But a lot of times I'm not sure. So a lot of times I will give someone a prescription for an antibiotic and I will say, do not start this antibiotic for another two days if you're still not feeling better or if it gets worse. Uh, because a lot of those people, I think, will get better without the antibiotics. So that's called a watch and wait strategy. So I do that a lot, too, in the emergency room. Not everything is life or death in the emergency room. In fact, the large majority of stuff is not life or death. Okay. I think that, that, that that's a good rule of thumb, too, depending if it's emergency or not, and evaluating kind of the risk and giving it some time. I think that's, that's, that's a good drawing the line there. When you think you are going to lose your job from AI? <laughs> uh, that's a very good question. I've been wondering that myself lately. I, I do think a lot of what doctors do can already be done by AI. In fact, I was working next to a doctor. We were working at the same time a few weeks ago, and he was using ChatGPT uh, to kind of to write his note for him, because a lot of what we do is spent uh, typing our notes at the computers to document everything that happens and every decision we make. He was specifically using ChatGPT for the what we call medical decision-making, where you explain in the note why you did what you did, why you did those tests, why you didn't do other tests, why you gave certain medications or didn't. And ChatGPT was right on, like right on exactly what I would have thought and said, uh, and it wrote it out in a much more eloquent way, perhaps. So I think a lot of the decision making is there. Uh, but I think there's some other a lot of what I do is working with my hands, whether it's, uh, you know, cutting open an abscess, uh, removing bl big splinters, you know, removing pieces of injured toenail. I mean, I can go on and on. There's a lot of things that I do with my hands. Uh, which is one reason I love being an, uh, a doctor, and especially in the emergency room, is you work with your hands, but you also work with your brain as well, your problem-solving brain, which goes back to what we talked about before. And it's a great combination of using your head and your hands. 
as soon as ChatGPT can have hands and do that part of my job too, it's probably curtains for me. So you, uh, I bet, uh, have a bet with my cousin that she, how, I'm making fun f- uh, of her the last couple of years. She, because she, she's studying, uh, medicine in Cambridge. I think she finished uh, this year, not, yeah, to become a doctor. She finished this year. And I'm, I was telling her the last couple of years, don't do it. You, you are going to be the first person to be replaced. <laughs> and it's like, because it's like very controversial opinion to say that because doctors are like the top of the hierarchy of the jobs and all this stuff. So to say that your job will be replaced. But uh, so you, you're saying that one aspect of, of doctors, which is uh, giving the treatment and doing the uh, uh, understanding what the patient has, that's an easy job to be replaced. But you're saying that uh easier job but you're saying things to do with your hands and like uh maybe a surgery or all this uh, that's more harder thing and that would be probably the later thing that will be replaced i think so though i i should also say that chat gpt it requires the input of a doctor for instance to say what what did the patient's heart sound like what did the lungs sound like what are their symptoms what does the x-ray show uh, some of that could be automated. What X-ray show perhaps ChatGPT could do, um, but I guess there's a lot of like physical interaction in in uh, doctor-patient interaction, and so I guess I think it's still going to be a while, to be honest, before we're replaced. I think your cousin's going doing, to be your cousin's making a fine career choice. <laughs> we'll have a bed in 50 years if she will be replaced i win <laughs> so, <laughs> so i think that uh, doctors doctors will work with chat gpt or with ai before they are completely replaced by ai though so maybe, maybe that yes. will make less doctors necessary fewer doctors uh but i think we won't be replaced for some time i could be totally wrong though it's it's interesting but i i'm going to challenge you a bit on that it's like with Apple Watch now that we have, uh, we get a lot of uh, like the palms all the time. Like maybe it will have, there is uh, other things that they get, give us more data about our body. So maybe a new application will be developed and collecting all the da- this data and will be telling you and will be collecting data from millions of people and they will be telling you, oh, you have that or go to the doctor or see this immediately a lot better than and like when, when it will tell you exactly what you have and will just tell you exactly how to treat it and what to do. So like, what, like, what, what, tell me what you think about these uh, thoughts that I'm sharing. Well, I think that uh, there's a lot of optimism about data and people, a lot of people think, oh, the more data, the better. But I think that I'm skeptical of that. I think a lot of data, I would like to see that that data actually helps with diagnosis or helps improve outcomes. You know, in the ICU, there's an old tool called a Swan-Gans catheter. It's basically a catheter you put into the veins of the neck, you thread down into the heart. It's very fancy. It it gives you a ton of information. This is in like some of the sickest people in the cardiac ICU. It gives you a lot of information about pressure in different parts of the heart different parts of the lung. Um, But 
it, so it gives you a lot of more data, but it's uh, some studies show it's not clear that it actually helps more people survive. Uh, so I think we have to be wary of thinking more data is better without really knowing how to interpret it or knowing that more data will actually help us get better outcomes. Because outcomes are the ultimate thing, right? How healthy we are, how long we live, the quality of our lives uh, is important. And so that's the ultimate measure of our, is this data helpful or not? Well, I feel kind of stupid to be debating with you about this stuff, but uh, <laughs> I have, uh, because you know a lot more things about that, but like, that's what chat GBT, let's say it's about. That's, that's what all these large language models can do a lot better than human collect data and understand and have something when you ask them or output when you ask them. So I think that's, uh, it's, it's difficult for a human to interpret more data because of our small uh, cognition of understanding all the, the putting all the data together, but maybe not for an artificial intelligence that can put and see correlations between all the data. Maybe I'm, you could be right. Absolutely. Uh, I, I'm not trying to say it's definitely not going to help, but I'm saying that I'm just skeptical that more data, even in the hands of a machine that can process much more data than a human, um, I'm skeptical that it will in al always lead to better outcomes. Sure, in some instances, maybe it's, it very well might. I would not be surprised if it did, but I'm just skeptical. I'm a little skeptical about everything, especially about medical uh, kind of techno-optimism and optimism about the, you know, you hear people 10 years ago, 15 people are saying, oh, we're going to be sequencing every patient's genome. We're going to know which medicine to give them. We're going to know everything. And that that's not the case. Maybe we will one day. I would be thrilled if that were the case, but I'm just skeptical and I have a guarded optimism about these things. I like that garden optimism. Garden on optimism is a cool way to put it. It's not, it's not, not optimist, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a skeptical about my optimism. <laughs> exactly. It's not pessimism. It's not the same thing as pessimism, though. So I want you and now with your guarded optimist to describe me how you think a hospital will look uh, in 10, 20 years from now. That's a great question. I do think a lot of care that we do in the hospital will move out of the hospital. There are some interesting programs where they are uh, caring for patients in the home more than they have in the past. Uh, and even there are some really interesting experiments where there are even people, let's say, with a heart failure, uh, kind of, they have chronic heart failure, but they have an acute worsening of their heart failure. A lot of these patients come into the hospital and get an IV medication maybe twice a day uh, and, are, and are on the cardiac monitor. And a lot of that could be done safely. Some studies show and more studies are needed, but a lot of that could be done safely in people's homes, like even sometimes with leaving an IV in their arm or sometimes just giving them shots kind of in the arm and the muscle, let's say a visiting nurse twice a day with a monitor in the house that the nurse can monitor from a distance. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so I, I think a lot of, I think that will... It saves a lot of money. It does not make, it is not more dangerous than doing it in the hospital. It's about a trillion times more comfortable for patients. And maybe patients will actually even sleep because in the hospital, it's nearly impossible to sleep uh, due to noise and a million other things. Much of it doctors are responsible for. 
Um, and so I think there's many benefits there. So I think that will be actually a big thing where the sickest people will be in the hospital, but a lot of the perhaps not, not as sick people will be able to be cared for in their home. And I think that will be great. Yes, I, I think that's probably true. There is a lot of people that say they ho you go in the hospital without being sick and you walk out being sick. <laughs> <laughs> that's another issue. Yes, many people get infections while in the hospital, uh, of course. So um, that would be another very large benefit to people being in their own homes. Yes, my, my mother is... Uh, She's teaching nursing in the university and she explained me that the, there is so much, uh, bacteria in the hospitals, a lot more than you can find in uh, regular homes or in other environments. So it's, uh, it's, uh, and like a lot of time mistreatment for, from, uh, nurses or anything can actually be the reason that you, people are, are dying because of that putting them in that environment. So, yeah, I think that that's very interesting that you think we're going to move away from a centralized uh, hospital society and we're more like uh, treatment at at your uh, at your house like the plumber is coming to your house to fix you or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> exactly. And not only is there more kinds of bacteria in the hospital, but more of them are resistant to antibiotics. Uh, because people are being treated in the hospital. Sometimes, I mean, in the current world, sometimes that's an unavoidable side effect of needing to treat antibiotics with infections. It's probably also due to overtreatment of antibiotics with infections. But yes, there's things in hospitals you do not want to pick up. So for a million and one reasons, it would be great for people to be cared for in their home. Okay. Uh There is a question that I ask all the guests in this podcast. I have one trillion dollars <laughs> and I give it to you. How do you use it to impact the world that we are living in? Oh man. Um, that's a great question. Oh my God. You are complimenting so much about my questions. I think that I'm clever. <laughs> You're very insidious. Your, your questions are excellent. Huh? Yeah, you know, I'm stumped. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not a big idea person. I do think, though, that you know, I've worked around the world. I've worked in some very poor parts of the world, and in a lot of parts of the world, I, I know people are still suffering from a lot of things that seem old-fashioned here in the U.S. from lack of food, from inadequate nutrition. I worked in Calcutta, India, and saw children with vitamin deficiencies. Uh, that I had only read about in my textbook and have never seen in the U.S., probably never will see in the U.S. if I spend the next 50 years practicing as a doctor. And so I saw vitamin deficiencies, other forms of malnutrition. Still, the number of children in India who die of things like pneumonia and diarrhea, which are easily treatable if only the right medicines or right treatments were available. Uh, I think that looking from the U.S., we think that Obesity is the big problem or overtreatment with antibiotics. But in a, in a lot of the world, actually, there's the opposite is still the case. So I think I would start by helping out uh, in those situations where the basics, uh, all the advances of the 20th century that we take for granted now has, have still not really even arrived to some parts of the world. So that would be my first step. 
So can you, because I'm a bit interested in the topic, uh, very interested in the topic. Can you walk me through, how do you do that? Like you go and you start a hospital in the middle of Kolkata in India, is that, or you take some, you see what the diseases are there and you take, uh, the drugs that are necessary and you distribute it and you have one person there to distribute it. It's like, how do you put this in appliance? Those are great questions. Uh, I don't know that I have great answers. I do know, for instance, I've worked in various parts of India and rural Tanzania. And, you know, on paper, there are health outposts in all these parts of the world that have certain medications on the shelf. But a lot of times when people go to them to get the medication, they're not there or they're closed or there's no worker there. Um, so that, honestly, I don't even know how to fix those problems. Those are problems of supply chain, problems of, you know, oversight, problems of bureaucracy. Uh, and so the problem as well, the kids ha- are not aware that that will solve, they don't know that this is a pro I have diarrhea now and that's a problem and I need to, uh, to ask for help there. Probably I assume. Yeah, I, I certainly think education is a part of it. Health literacy is a part of it. I worked in parts of the U.S., uh, for instance, on a, a Native American reservation in South Dakota, where the it was obvious that the level of health literacy was very low, very, very low, and that was impacting uh, care, ability, or knowing when to seek care, knowing how to take your medicine. I mean, but that's, that's not unique to that uh, place or culture. It's common throughout the U.S. in urban and rural settings. Um, so health literacy can be very low. In a lot of these parts of the world, though, that still suffer from these problems, I mean, literacy in general is low or um, other, a- any basic understanding of yeah, when to seek medical attention, uh, when you do and when you don't need to and what medicines might help. That's also another problem. So better education and better health care everywhere. And how to do that, I'm not really sure. I need someone much smarter and more organized than me. <sighs> I have, um, I collected $20,000 from people on our YouTube channel, the subscribers, and we're going to go and, do- and donate them in Burundi, uh, the world's poorest country. Great. Uh, so I, this, I need to do that before the end of the year. So I'm like, desperately looking for ways to, because I care about not the perception of doing good, like, oh yes, give it to a charity. And say, I care about the actual good, like those money to have actual impact. So yes, so I'm thinking exactly what's the best uh, way, because people are dying from malaria in Burundi still. And it's like, how do I prevent that? And it's like, um, <laughs> do you, if you were in my position, what do you do? <laughs> it's so hard to know. I think it's it's very hard to turn money into you know effect effect or to improve people's lives. Even I work with a few charities still in India, one in particular in Calcutta. And yes, you know we send the I raise money in the U.S. I send it to them, but even a lot of that money, you know, they're a large organization. They have a hundred employees. Those employees need salaries. They have to keep their vans. You know, they do medical uh, relief work. They drive vans around. They transport children to school. They run schools. The schools have plumbing and lighting. So all this money, you know, if money goes to the plumbing in a school, I mean, that that sounds good. It's not a direct impact, but it certainly is necessary. Or the, the mobile hospital needs repairs or gas. 
some of the money is going to go to those things. You know, there's so many little details that go into solving some of these big problems that it can be frustrating. I've been in these pl- some of these places and I realize that it's, it, you know, you don't get the action or the result of the action that you expect. It's very complicated and, and very difficult. It's very hard for your for your dollar to be having you know, an effect as a dollar. Uh, maybe your dollar is having like the twenty cents go directly to to the, the person in a way that it helps. There's a lot of overhead. I mean, everything in life has overhead, <laughs> and so a lot of the money will go to that. It's very frustrating. Bro, spe- <laughs> if word was going to be easier place, it was going to be a f- more, <laughs> but maybe that's where the fun comes. That is challenging. It's <laughs> challenging. You could probably read 20 books about why people are dying of malaria in Burundi and it'll involve history and culture and education and politics and geography and climate. And it's probably very complicated, which doesn't mean you can't make an impact. I think you can, but I don't, I don't know the answer, unfortunately. Even the parts of the world that I know a bit more about, I'm still uh, stumped and mystified about how best to help. So I think it's, it's a very unique, you are in a very unique position because uh, doctors never experience, uh, I've been to Kolkata, I've been to Tanzania, and doctors don't understand what's the, like, how much of a level, uh, fortunate we are in these fir- first world countries that we are. So like, what did you experience there that really uh, gave you perspective or what you found different there that really gave you an education as a doctor? And it's like, yeah, touch a bit on your experience there. Sure. So I was a medical student uh, in the U.S. medical schools four years. And between my third and fourth year, I took a year off from medical school and spent six months in India. And so for the first few months, I just was an observer in a a public hospital in Mumbai. So it was a very large urban hospital and it was public. So it was treating the people who were very poor. And I basically saw every disease that I had ever read about and had probably will never see my whole career in the U.S. I often say that my pathology textbook came to life when I was there. And, and, and many of those diseases are preventable. For instance, I saw a lot of rheumatic heart disease. Rheumatic heart disease is the result of untreated strep throat, basically, where your heart valves end up getting damaged. And years later, you have heart failure. And the only treatment is uh, surgery or tra- heart transplant. And I saw people of all ages suffering from um, rheumatic heart disease my stethoscope never in, never felt so useful, in fact, uh, as it did there in the U.S. because I was hearing so many different abnormal sounds from the heart. Even people, I saw uh, teen, uh, one teenager, for instance, who had congenital heart disease. So he was born with a a hole in his heart, and it just never got repaired. And he came in at the very end of his life and ended up dying during that hospitalization just because his family, there's no way they could uh, afford the surgery to repair it. So. In the U.S., that's unheard, mostly unheard of. You know, we know about these defects before children are even born because we do so many ultrasounds, and they almost always get repaired and and rarely lead to death like that. And it's not a hundred percent, but um, there it's normal when you're when you can't afford things. So other things, you know, just to get a, a bag of IV fluid in the hospital in Mumbai, the family has to pay upfront for it. So they're not just going to hang the bag of fluid unless they know there's payment coming for it. And that is so different from the way we do it in the U.S. I hang bags of fluid 
me, nurses, other doctors, we hardly even think about it. It's such a normal uh, everyday thing that we do it multiple times every hour probably that we're working. And so the, there's so many examples like that um, in the hospital in Mumbai. But then a different set of experiences. I worked for this charity in Calcutta and we were treating people who lived on the street, uh, who lived on the sidewalks, many, many people, some estimates many uh, of many millions of people living on the sidewalks of Calcutta. <coughs> Excuse me. And that was where, so I visited an orphanage. I was sent by the charity to go to this orphanage and to just do a screen, a health screening on all the children. It was about 50 children. And I took, I examined them all, took information, took notes, asked questions about their diet. And that's where I saw a number of these vitamin deficiencies. In particular, um, I saw spots in the eyes of some of the children called Bitot spots, B-I-T-O-T. Those are signs of vitamin A deficiency, which is the most common cause of blindness uh, in the world, actually. So diabetes is the kind of among the most common and vitamin A deficiency is also among the most common, which is interesting because in one, perhaps there's an excess of certain kinds of food and in the other, there's a mal malnutrition from a lack of certain kinds of foods. And I, I recognized them immediately because I had seen pictures in my textbook when I was a medical student. I, of course, never seen that in the U.S., so that, that really showed me how different things are in different parts of the world or even within a society. You know, rich people in India, wealthy people who have access to health care, they get very high quality health care, probably almost as good as in the U.S. or as good as in the U.S. or maybe better than a lot of people get in the U.S. Uh, but the difference between the rich and the poor in India was even more stark than it is, let's say, in the U.S. where there is a lot of income inequality. And so that was a real eye opener. And, you know, vitamin A supplementation costs so little, costs pennies. And you can give these children a, a pill or a liquid to drink every six months, which is part of the work we were doing there uh, in Calcutta. And so it, it costs pennies to treat some of these problems. Uh, so that was, I would say, some of the biggest eye opening experiences I've had since starting medical school. Wow, 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 wow. While you were talking, you really inspired me to think uh, a bit about the problem that they have to spend those money uh, in um, Burundi. Uh, so you, when you mentioned that the kid had a hole in his heart and they, they didn't treat it, is maybe is because maybe it's not about affecting like thousands or hundreds of lives or going there maybe it's finding that easy fix that a person is like straightforward surgery and like a problem has this uh, thing that it's easy to fix it but just needs money for a surgery and then giving him and that will be also great for the video because you're going to develop his character as well because it's not, it's not about just doing the thing. <laughs> so it needs to make it also a good story for the video for people to watch it and get the, and grow the message out as well. So I think just finding that thing and document the process of the surgery and all these things, I think that can be, do you know by any chance like a a, a, like for example, a hole in the heart, a, an easy thing that a lot of thing, uh, an easy thing that this is common and it has an easy surgery for us to look there of people having this. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm asking stupid questions here, or I'm taking the conversation in different direction that I shouldn't. But uh, this is some worries that I have. So maybe. 
No, I think that um, I think in in many ways surgery can be a one time fix uh, for things, and so it's not a bad idea to aim for those things. I do think that cardiac surgery can be very complicated and very expensive, and you need very advanced medical systems. Like you can't just send a surgeon, a cardiothoracic surgeon, and he'll fix it. He or she will fix it. You need a a whole hospital, an OR. Often the patients need to be put on bypass where they're put on a, their heart and lungs are on a machine during the surgery. Then they need a very well-equipped ICU to recover from the surgery. Uh, but there are a lot of small things that can help. For instance, cataract surgery is actually very much a one and done. Um, not that there's never complications, but so if you find an ophthalmologist who can cure a lot of cataracts, that would actually be great. Another thing that you could do, so one of the things we were doing in Calcutta was uh, there's some good studies on for children who are at risk of being malnourished, giving them a, in the developing world, giving them a, a vitamin A supplement every six months and giving them an anti-parasite medicine every six months. There's a lot of good studies showing that, that those two things significantly improve uh, their development. It prevents the vision loss from vitamin A deficiency and improves their growth as well because parasites are super common, intestinal parasites. Um, and that those are pennies, those uh, anti-parasite medicines and vitamin A. Um, but there are these little surgeries like that that can really help that are much less complicated and then have less complication risks too, like a cataract removal. Okay, okay, cool. Uh, so mo moving uh, out from this, not sad, it's interesting, this is is interesting topic, but it's uh, too... To understand so that there is so much inequality between the world is can be overwhelming to to understand that. So uh moving on from oh, from this topic, uh let's go to a bit uh I see you are an expert and you debated a lot of uh, times in podcasts about vegans and uh carnivores and all this stuff. So maybe I'm vegetarian myself. Because I choose uh, that maybe the life of the animal is worth a bit more than the taste that I I have at the moment uh, that I eat meat. But like, do you what do you think about this topic? Because this is a rising uh, thing: vegetarians attacking uh, the people that eat meat. The meat people they are making fun of the people that uh, that are, and it's like wh which one you think is more beneficial, maybe for your health. But you touch a bit briefly on the beginning, I remember. But maybe you can elaborate a bit more. Yes, well, I'm I'm definitely not an expert on this topic. To be fair. Uh, I do think that I'm also not an expert in a lot of the externalities, let's say, of, um, you know, a lot of people raise issues with raising animals regarding environmental damage and climate. Um, though I think that, um, for instance, in America, we do a lot of hunting. I'm a hunter. And I think that hunting gets around a lot of those problems. For instance, here in the eastern U.S., I'm in Pennsylvania. Uh, we basically got rid of all the carnivores. There's no bear. There's there are bears, but bears don't really uh, hunt deer much. Maybe only small deer. There aren't many wolves or any perhaps. The coyote's been gone, although it's making a comeback. So, and then we planted a bunch of corn and other flowers and yummy suburban ornamental plants that deer love to eat. So, I think the situation, for instance, right here in Pennsylvania, is that if you are not hunting the deer, you're going to be hitting them with your car. And those are the two options. 
So I think, and, and that happens a lot, thousands of times every year, deer are injured and people are injured uh, as well. Sometimes people die from hitting deer on the roads. It's very common to hit deer in Pennsylvania. So I think the situation here, people must hunt, actually. I think it's essential. And certainly you're not going to hunt and not eat the meat. That would be cruel and, and uh, you know, unsustainable and unethical. What do you mean people uh, must hunt? I'm a bit confused on that. Like, sure. it's like you see that deers are taking over, so we need to kill them in, in a way. <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's so many deer in Pennsylvania that thousands of times every year, people hit them with their cars accidentally. Uh, because they're just everywhere. In fact, I was driving in Pennsylvania yesterday and saw three deer within a few miles that were dead on the side of the road. Each of those deaths is terrible, not to mention that the person in the car might be injured. You know, their their car might be damaged, but they themselves might be injured, and the deer has died for no reason. So I think, given that this current situation where there's so many deer, I think hunting is important. Because if we're not keeping the deer, the more we hunt, the less we're hitting deer with our cars. So I think the situation is very unique in parts of the U.S. where hunting is actually very important. <coughs> Excuse me. I, but, I think that's different than many parts of the world, but that's the situation but here. Can't we say the same with humans? Like uh, we're getting, let's say, the population of the earth uh, is is getting growing bigger, <clears> let's say. So hunting humans is probably because you see humans everywhere. So hunting, I, I, I'm just questioning uh, stuff. I'm, 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 not, I'm not attacking here. <laughs> totally valid question. Well, I'm biased since I'm a human and I don't like other humans being killed. I would say, no, that's not a, a good idea. If I was a deer, maybe I'd be very against um, hunting as well. But I do think that controlling the deer population is important. Um, even in, in the Midwest, uh, where agriculture is immensely important, um, if the deer populations were not controlled by hunting, it would make agriculture very, very difficult. Maybe if we kill some humans, there'll be less agricultural agriculture needed, perhaps. Um, but I don't think that's a viable option, uh, killing people. Maybe I'm biased because I'm a doctor and spend most of my day uh, trying to avoid human death, or at least to make it easier, perhaps. Um, but yeah, and I think that, um, the deer also even left to themselves, you know, a lot of times they'll, they'll eat so much of a certain resource that there'll then be a population boom and a population bust following it where the food resource, let's say disappears. And then there's a lot of starvation and the population goes down. I don't, I'm not an expert in deer population, but I know some wild populations that do overpopulate that happens. And then there's a population bust. So I think there's there's uh, even a deer centric reason to not let their populations grow too high. What do you think of that idea? Are you against hunting? Uh, no, I don't know. I'm not against uh, hunting, definitely. But uh, when it comes down to personal choosing to hunt, I had one experience when I was in the army. I finished uh, the Navy SEAL uh, uh part of the army in my country and then they put us to kill uh 
some pigeons. And it was a horrible experience because I took out the head of, of a pigeon. And I still remember that was uh, the big reason that I became vegetarian because it's like it was a bit cruel for me to just take the head out of the, uh, of the pigeon. So yes, uh, but uh, I'm not against hunting. I'm not against anybody doing anything, but I just choose personally that it, it doesn't feel right. So, but it's like, probably it's like, if we go back to the Amazon or when it's like people need to kill stuff, tweet and all this stuff. So it's, we have an evolution. It's like, I, I'm not mad when a lion kills a deer and eats it. So like, I'm not mad when a human uh, does it. But for my personal thing, and also I'm very mad to a lot of, uh, I, I don't like to be labeled as a vegetarian because uh, they are assholes, because they're <laughs> like, no, you, you, you need to not kill animals. You know, you are, they're forcing people and they're trying to force their opinion into other people. So yes, I'm, I'm one of the polite ones. I'm like, ah, this is what I choose. This is what I have <laughs> doing for this, for these I mean, reasons. But and yeah. I, I can't say that maybe if we were all vegetarian and had better ways of managing wildlife, maybe the world would be a better place. I can't say for sure, uh, you know, that it's not, uh, so maybe that will happen in the future. I don't think so personally, but, um, I think we can live in harmony with nature and, and eat, uh, both plants and animals as we have for a very long time. But since we're on the topic on the tr nutritional fact, you think, uh, you think you're, you mentioned a lot of times a balance between uh, both is, is a good thing. So it's like, uh, you don't think a, a vegetarian is going to be so much, uh, and not getting everything that he needs. And maybe, uh, so do you think that you can still be a vegan or vegetarian, get all the nutritions that you need with sampling? Uh, also, I want to ask you, do not forget to ask your opinion about supplements of getting, uh, I don't know. Omega three or whatever the thing is later, but yeah, first I answer the question about the nutritional facts of vegan and vegetarian and carnivores. Sure, I'm not again. I'm not an expert, but I do know that uh, I, I do think vegans and vegetarians can get all the vitamins and nutrients that they need. I do think in some ways it can be harder uh, to get all the let's say B12 that's needed or the amounts of protein that are needed. Um, so I, I think you have to sometimes be more careful. Also, like essential amino acids, it's much easier to get all of the essential amino acids when you eat meat than if you're um, relying solely on plant, plant proteins. But it's certainly possible. And given how many choices of food we have and accessibility to food from all around the world, basically everything edible that exists is available these days, uh, depending where you live. So I do think you can do it uh, safely, um, but you just have to be a bit more careful if you're not eating meat. I don't think any which way is, is right or wrong, though, and I, I don't think there's a should or a shouldn't. I think each person decides for themselves. I eat meat and love meat, um, but if you know that's not right for other people, I respect that. Uh, can you explain me what I said about the supplements as well? Like all the, are you, because there is a lot of companies now that they are selling supplements for our diets and all this, to take a pill full of supplements. Do you think that's, uh, that's, uh, uh, good? Do you think we should always strive to get it from the natural way? Because I saw there is, 
one crazy person. I think we're going to have him on the podcast now that he he's uh, uh, he's taking a hundred fifty pills per day and he's trying to uh, stop aging or something like that, reverse aging in a way. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, what do you think about all these crazy things? <laughs> um, you know, like I said before, I'm very skeptical of most things. Um, I'm skeptical of all supplements. Um, some of them people swear by them. Well then God bless, take your supplement. Um, I'm just not convinced that any of the supplements are all that important if you're eating a healthy diet. Certainly if you're a uh, living in poverty child in Calcutta with uh, who's going blind from vitamin A deficiency, I'm all for supplements for that kid, a vitamin A supplement in particular. Um, but for people on a, on a modern, you know, let's say, uh, people who afford a, a varied diet, let's say here in the US or other first world countries, I'm very skeptical that any vitamins or supplements are needed. That being said, if a patient came in and said, oh, ever since I started this supplement, I never felt better, I would say, God bless, keep, keep on keeping on. So you are not against, you are not pro-supplements. You are in the middle. Yeah, I would love to see more studies. I think there's also some concerning studies, like in the U.S. at least, where they, they do tests on supplements and find out that the, the supplement that's supposed to be in there is not even in there or not in there in the correct amount. And so it's hard to even know what you're getting uh, because the supplement industry, at least here in the U.S., is very unregulated. So I think there's a lot of low-quality things Sometimes there's dangerous things mixed in with them. Sometimes the thing you think you're buying is not in there at all. So, uh, so I think it's hard to, hard to know for sure. I have a question that is very interesting for me and I think for the people because we all have a body, we all eat food, we all drink water. What happens in our body when we eat food and how, where it goes first, maybe explain us the whole process, the journey in our stomach, in our sofa goes, like how, how does it, how many hours it takes to be processed? How many hours it takes for us to pee and like, oh, oh no, this is very interesting. Like people, uh, I think, <laughs> yes. So well, you can, you can read, through. you can read many books about this as well, but Basically, I mean, digestion starts in the mouth. I mentioned before that there's some enzymes in our saliva that start to break down food, especially one called amylase that breaks down starch, like from a potato or some other, um, some other plant foods. Um, and so we chew it, we smush it around with our tongue, we mix it up with saliva to make it nice and soft and in pieces, and then we swallow it, it goes down the esophagus into the stomach. And in the stomach, digestion continues there. Uh, it's very acidic there, which helps protect us from bacteria and other things, viruses. It kills most of them, which is so the stomach acid is actually part of the immune system because it protects your body from some some of those microbes, which is interesting. interesting. I, I always wonder, like, why do we have all this? Because sometimes when you not want to puke, is uh, when you puke, is like it feels very acidic, uh, yeah. thing, horrible. That I'm like. Why the hell have these things like that? Yeah. So that's, it's very that's acidic. It's very <laughs> acidic in your stomach. And there's even some kinds of battery acid down there. There's hydro, uh, hydrochloric acid, which is very acidic, more acidic than coffee, for instance. Um, and that's a barrier. You know, our skin is part of the immune system too. It, it protects us from the world around us. 
the trouble with eating is that you're taking the world around you and you're swallowing it and putting it into your body. So you need other protection down there. And so acid is one of the big ones. Um, but digestion continues there in your stomach. You have enzymes. Well, you didn't tell me how much time it takes to go from eating it to go to the stomach. Well, when you swallow it, it's in your stomach a few seconds later. Like when you swallow I, it. That immediately. Wow. Yeah, it, it goes, it moves down your esophagus quite quickly, like less than 30 seconds. It's in your stomach. Um, and in your stomach, which is in your upper abdomen, you know, right kind of under the chest. Um, the food is the, the stomach has muscles in the wall. So it's squeezing the food even more, squeezing it, breaking it up, mixing it with the acid, mixing it with enzymes. So there's more breaking down of food in there. There's an enzyme called pepsin and many others that start to break down protein in the stomach too. Those enzymes work best in acid. So it's convenient that they are there in the stomach where all the acid is. Um, and so then when your food is nice and mixed up and acidic and partially digested, it goes into the small intestines. Be before you go there, that's why it's better to swallow and chew the food better because you don't gi give to your stomach so much work to push and process. So you need less, let's say, muscles to to chew the food, to uh, something like that. You, uh, that's the reason? Yeah, I think, I mean, chewing your food is definitely important. It's easier to swallow also, yes. And digestion is overall an easier process. Also, you less risk of choking, I guess, um, if you chew your food well. Uh, but yes, chewing your food is very important and uh, starts the digestion process in your mouth and then it continues in your stomach. And then after okay, your stomach... I comes the small intestines. The small intestines is where most of the absorbing of nutrients happens. So um, the int small intestines is very long, the longest part of your whole alimentary canal, your whole GI tract. And that's where most of the uh, absorption happens. And you also, uh, your gallbladder squirts bile into your small intestines, which helps you digest fat uh, because... It's sort of complicated, but basically, you know, fat and water don't mix and all your enzymes that break down fat are in, in the water. And so if oil and water don't mix, how do these water soluble enzymes act on the fat and break it down? So bile, bile is almost like soap. It holds uh, fat and water together and helps you digest all the fat. So sometimes when people have a problem with their bile, a lot of fat does not get digested or absorbed and it comes out the other end, which is not, not pleasant. Um, and your pancreas What do you mean comes, uh, comes down the, the other end? Without... Like in your feces, in your, in your stool, there'll, there'll be fat left over sometimes because you could not uh, digest it. Okay. Um, and your pancreas also secretes a lot of enzymes there as well. The pancreas is very important for breaking down fats and protein. Your small intestines do all the absorption, most of it. At where, where the most nutritions uh, are breaking down and uh, supplied to the other body? Where, where is the, the, what is the organ that does the, this job most? Well, it happens most in the small intestine. Um, that's probably the most. But the pancreas, for instance, uh, squirts enzymes into the small intestine to help that process. So I'd say there, but the small intestines is kind of the chamber 
where it takes place, where it is digested, can, and where it's absorbed can, can, through the wall. Can you give me a bit of time as well involved in this? Like, okay, it takes 30 seconds to go to this, and how much time it takes to go from the stomach to that, and how much time it takes to go? Those are good questions. I definitely memorized those numbers when I was a medical student, um, but I don't know exactly what they are now. But I would say stuff stays in your stomach probably for a few hours, then goes into the small intestine where it can take, let's say, many more hours, 12 to 15. I'm kind of making it up, but that's sort of the general idea, um, to th that many hours to get to the small intestine uh, before it gets to the final part, which is the large intestine or the colon. And the large intestine and the colon, what does happen there? So um, basically, that's where the stool is formed. The body absorbs a bunch of extra water out of uh, what's there. And there's a lot of bacteria, of course, in there as well. And the bacteria help break down uh, ferment and break down and rot some of the leftover nutrients. Um, so we do absorb some things from the large intestine, not many, but we do absorb some. And um, so it's kind of the opposite, you know, um, cows and sheep and deer and ruminants like this, their first stomach is where the fermentation happens and then the rest of digestion. For us, it's the opposite, where the fermentation happens at the very end, and that's where all the bacteria are in the large intestine. So about all the process of digestion and pooping and everything, it takes, let's say, from 24 hours to 48 hours, uh, let's say, maybe. Yeah. I'd say that's a good estimate. And of course, if you eat more fiber, things happen faster, moves, moves through faster. That's why is, it's good to eat fiber? Yes. Well, fiber is good for many reasons. But a lot of times when people are constipated, uh, doctors will tell them to eat more fiber so that things move through a little bit better. Though fiber has many other health benefits um, in terms of uh, absorbing certain things, slowing down the absorption of sugar. Um, and actually a lot of, a lot of cardiovascular health benefits to eating fiber. Actually, if fiber was a, a new pharmaceutical and had those effects on the body, it would be considered a, a medical miracle. And it, every doctor would be pushing it on their patients. So I have an unpopular opinion. I'm going to tell you here that, um, pooping is the best way to understand if you are eating your poop is the best uh, way to understand if you are eating healthy. And is that just, um, how often or the consistency color smell and, what? and, and the quality of the, <laughs> of the poop? Like if you have hard time of pooping, let's say, or if you are pooping once a day and like you just go and poop and is, I heard this is a bit crazy, but I heard the, another person that talks about food to say when you don't need uh, that much time to wipe your ass from the uh, from poop, it's it probably is you are eating healthier because like is, we are on the only animal on the planet that wipes their ass. True. <laughs> so, so all the other people are fine with, without wiping their ass and stuff. But, uh, so if you don't need to wipe your ass and like a lot of times you put, I'm sorry people that you have, that you see here this conversation, but uh, <laughs> I'm trying to have a conversation without the limitations. But what do you think about this, this idea? 
Well, let me say that this is in my job. I talk about poop with people all day and they tell me all about their poop in every way. So for me, this is very normal. Um, I, I, <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, it certainly sounds good and convenient um, to not have to wipe much because it is a, a bummer. But um, I, I don't really know. I'm not sure you can draw that much. That, that's another area where perhaps more data uh, isn't always going to help because we don't know what to do with that extra data. But I would love to see uh, some big studies on that to see. But then you have to take people's word for it unless you're going to have researchers in the bathroom with them counting the number of uh, squares of toilet paper. Wipes. <laughs> or are you just going to do surveys and trust that they're telling you the truth? And Very complicated. Always a lot of... <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. Uh, okay. So uh, I want to say uh, another observation that I had. So I did 30, like I told you, uh, I did 30 days with no food. And maybe because I kind of, I lost like 30 pounds, something like that when I was uh, doing that 33 pounds uh, on the way. And uh, it was a very painful journey for my body. It's like I shrink down. I lost a lot of muscle. I, I, so maybe that's a good way to treat cancer. Um, well, that's an interesting question. Um, I do think that cancer won't, won't be tricked by that. Um, I mean, so a lot of times when people with cancer get very skinny, uh, there's actually a few reasons for that. One reason is that the tumor is stealing all the nutrients from the bloodstream. So taking all the protein and sugar and using it to grow itself. But another reason is that the person is not eating well either because they feel sick from the tumor, they feel sick from the treatment, the chemotherapy, or maybe their gut is not working right because of the chemotherapy or because of the disease, the tumor itself. So not, not eating um, will starve, I think, the rest of the body more, like much more quickly than it will starve the tumor. And a lot of times when cancer patients get very skinny and waste away, that's, you know, the prognosis is worse, basically. The more you can maintain weight, the better. And so not eating um, will probably be bad and not helpful. That's my theory. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, I have uh, a question on why the hell you became a doctor? Did you always wanted to become <laughs> a doctor? Um, no, I did not want to become one actually. So I, I would say most of my life, my mother told me I should become a doctor. And um, like every mother in the world. Yeah. And I said, <laughs> I said, no way. That's ridiculous. I'm going to, I'm going to do the opposite. Um, and I, so after college, I traveled a lot. I worked, I lived in Russia actually for um, a little over a year. I did a bunch of research on kind of the environmental movement and uh, native peoples in Siberia and the Russian Far East, traveled a lot. And um, I thought I was going to get a PhD in maybe one of these fields, maybe anthropology, maybe sociology. 
but I found that I found them rather unfulfilling. The travel was amazing, uh, but the actual academic work I found not very interesting at all. And I really, I had a lot of hobbies where I use my hands. So I'm very interested in all sorts of um, crafts, especially prehistoric crafts. Like uh, I learned to make uh, bows and arrows. I learned to turn animal skin into leather or hide or buckskin. Learned to make tools from stone and bone and antler. These are, like I mentioned in the very beginning, I've just always been very interested in where things come from and how people make things. And so that was one of my hobbies. I really love to work with my hands. And basically, I realized that being a doctor would do two things. One, it would uh, satisfy my urge to use my hands. It would satisfy uh, my interest in sort of a, like a cognitive problem solving, almost like a detective, because that's what you do as a doctor. But also, it would allow me to travel to places like I was in remote parts of Russia, and uh, perhaps even give back or help people in some of those places as where I didn't feel like being a sociologist was helping all that much. Um, so, sorry about that. But um, so I, uh, so it, it seemed like a good idea from all those perspectives. And so I went back and studied all my sciences, which I never did in college and absolutely loved it since and loved all of medical school. In my medical school, there were very few people at the lecture. Most people listened to a recording of the lecture, maybe a few days later on two times speed. Um, but I was actually at almost every lecture because I was a big nerd and really just loved learning all the details. Do you remember that moment that it clicked for you that, oh, maybe this is a path for me? I do, actually. So I was in a part of Russia called Kamchatka in a very remote part of nor northeastern Kamchatka living with a family who was, uh, the mother was Koryak, which is one of the indigenous people. The father was Russian. And they were camped on the side of a river during the salmon run. And they were um, fishing salmon and uh, drying the fish, smoking the fish and selling the caviar on the black market, which is basically what everyone was doing in that region at the time to make a living. Um, this was in 2002. And um, I was on that my trip was coming to an end. I was thinking about what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Am I going to go get a PhD in sociology? And I was just sort of sitting around the fire and chatting with people. And I guess suddenly my mother's advice started sounding like a pretty good idea. Um, so really, it actually was at that, at, at that moment, sitting around the fire that I decided I should probably go to medical school. What age you were? Um, I was 21. What a day in a life of a doctor looks like for you? Well, for me, I work in the emergency room, so um, it's very prescribed. I have a time where my shift starts. I have a time where my shift stops. And when I'm not working in the ER, I have no responsibilities whatsoever, which is sort of how I like it. I like to be either at work or at home, or at least not working if not at home. Um, but while I'm in the ER, it can be very hectic, uh, very busy. Some days I do not stop moving for my entire shift. Some days I have little time to eat during my shift and I am basically drinking coffee most of the time, probably not the healthiest <laughs> diet. Um, but uh, at some, some days yeah, everything goes smoothly. Other days things seem to not work as well. 
some days I feel like I know exactly what the patients have and I'm very sure of every diagnosis I make and other days I'm very unsure or things seem more complicated or I feel like I'm missing certain things. Um, so it's very variable. But, um, but you make a lot of decisions. I make decisions like all day uh, when I work from start to finish. And a lot of the decisions are very important. Some are less important. Um, but we talk a lot about decision fatigue because um, doctors, all doctors, but especially in the ER, just make so many decisions, uh, one after the other. How many, how many day decisions you make, you think you make per day on average? Oh, it's certainly hundreds, I would say, hundreds in the course of, wow. let's say, a 10-hour shift. Um, and I each, thought each I was day. making decisions. I thought 10 decisions per day is... <laughs> Some of them are big decisions, some are small, but you're deciding to, you know, you're deciding how quickly to do things, you're deciding what tests to do, you're deciding what to do based on the results of those tests, you're deciding which treatments, which antibiotic, um, who needs further, you know, you're deciding does this person need further care, do they need to stay in the hospital, if so, do they need to stay in this hospital, do they need to go to another hospital because they're sick, or... Do they need a subspecialist? Should I call the subspecialist and chat on the phone or should I call to transfer them to the subspecialist? Um, so there's so many decisions about who you call, what orders you put in the computer, what you tell patients, when you tell uh, or when, you know, when you're going to do something. Um, so it's a lot of decisions, very tiring, but very rewarding. And I really, um, I love my job. A lot of doctors get burnt out, especially in the emergency room. I'm not there yet. Hopefully, I'll never get there. But um, I, as of now, I've been practicing for about 10 years or so, and I still really love my job. But, okay, so you didn't describe day in your life, but uh, you said, uh, I do a lot of decision-making. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I sit at a computer too, you know, like everybody else these days. Doctors spend a lot of time at the computer, typing notes, putting in orders, looking through a patient's chart to look for past medical information. I walk from my computer station into the patient's room, uh, go back to the computer, maybe go to another patient's room. Sometimes the nurse will say, oh, can you come see this patient really quickly? They're, they look bad. Uh, which means they need attention immediately and I will stop whatever I'm doing usually and go there. Um, so you, sometimes you're being pulled in many different directions and your to-do list is uh, growing all the time and never shrinking, unfortunately. Um, but it's very exciting. It's very interesting. I talk to people also all day. The large majority of them are patients, people I've never met before. I walk into the room, I introduce myself I say, what brings you in today? And suddenly they're telling me some small detail about their life, some intimate detail about, you know, their poop, about their breathing, about pain they're having, about problems, about psychological distress and wanting to kill themselves, about everything. So I really love that part of my job, too, is that these stra complete strangers will... You know, immediately after I tell them my name and say hello, they immediately start telling me about all their intimate secrets and all the things that are bothering them and scaring them. Um, and a lot of those conversations are very run-of-the-mill, but a lot of them are very moving and deep and interesting. And you just see where people are, where they live, and what their day-to-day -day life is like. You just get this incredible view of humanity that I'm not sure many other people 
get in life. And hopefully you get to help them too. You're not just a voyeur looking at their, um, the color of their poop. You know, you're actually trying to help them as well, or at least make them be less worried about whatever is going on. So it's really a unique job. And I think it's really Why do you think that it's that people are a lot vulnerable to their doctors and they're just spilled out. Like when will they meet a stranger and they ask them about stuff that never say, but when they meet, as you said, that that's my name. I, and I have hard time with my poop for the last day and it's frustrating. They tell you everything about their life. So why do you think that's the case? Well, I, I think part of it is they're there to get my opinion. So they know that they need to tell me what's going on or else I can't really help them. You know, I think doctor, there's sort of this air of this is the expert. This is the person who's going to help you. Um, you just have to be honest with them, uh, you know, and they'll always have the answers. Sometimes I don't have the answers and, you know, a patient might have a rash and I'll say, well, I think it's one of these three things. I'm not sure exactly which. And they'll say, what do you mean? You don't know which one it is. Aren't you a doctor? I say, you know, yes, uh, but sometimes it's not always clear what the diagnosis is. So, do, do, do they recognize that you are not God and that you make mistakes as well, or there is this perception that you need to know everything? <laughs> I think there is a perception that you need to know everything. I think also sometimes they're just frustrated. You know, they came all this way, they they left work early. This pain is really bothering them. They've been wondering if they should go to the ER for days or weeks. And finally, it's gotten annoying enough and painful enough that they're going to do it. And they would really like some answers. And then you're telling them, I don't know. So I, I, I understand the frustration uh, completely. Being a patient is very frustrating. Being Waiting in the ER waiting room, uh, which waits, wait times can be very long these days, is very frustrating. Sometimes people are not treated well by doctors, by nurses, by administration staff in the ER. There's, there's so much indignity uh, in being a patient in the, in the healthcare industry that I completely 100% understand people's uh, frustration. And sometimes they yell at me um, and I, you know, I apologize. I mean, I understand. It's not always friendly, but uh, I certainly understand uh, where they're coming from. So getting yelled at is another part of my day, I have to say. That doesn't happen often. Um, but definitely you get accused of things now and then. Yes, because they had a rough day and a rough week probably. And like there is finally one person that they they gives them attention because the administrator has other things to do. The nurse has other things to do. And you finally came and you're like, oh, all the things that built up, <laughs> to you. So. Right. And then maybe you leave too soon. And oh, like I spent all this time and money getting here. And now <laughs> I only had two minutes of the doctor's time. Um, you know, there's a lot of frustrations in being a patient. Um, I fully understand that. Uh, what about the aspects of death because in the emergency room, uh, yeah, room, it's uh, probably an often scenario. Yeah, it definitely, definitely happens often. You know, it's, it, it's interesting because a lot of time, you know, death, when you work in the ER, death almost becomes part of the job. Um, and so in a way, so you know, cool. I mean, these are people who I never met before. I have no connection to them. I know nothing about their life except 
their list of medical problems. And for instance, you know, they've been suffering from certain kinds of cancer or other problems, which I get from the medical chart or from the paramedic, let's say that brings them in. And um, you, it's amazing how you can, that can become sort of a normal part of the job, like doing CPR on patients, trying to, let's say, revive them is also, it's a very mechanical thing. We get trained to follow an algorithm. You know, if you don't feel a pulse, you start compressions. If you see a certain kind of rhythm on the monitor, you either deliver electric shock or you don't, or you give this medication in this number of milligrams every, whatever it is, two to four minutes. Everything is very algorithmic and robotic, even death or trying to revive someone, let's say, who has had a cardiac arrest. And so you and you get used to it. It's kind of amazing. I think people can get used to so much and you get used to that, too. Um, so and, and it's actually in a way it's good to get used to it. It's good to almost be a robot in certain situations because you want your doctor following that you algorithm. Detach, yes, you detach, detach exactly. your, your seven. Your decisions are better. If you take the decision making by emotions, a lot of times you get you have you are not alert to uh, respond to the problem and all this stuff. So, yeah. So there's, there's a definitely in some situations like doing CPR, you want your doctor to be a heartless bastard. Basically you want him or her to be a robot and follow the algorithm and do it right. And not be crying in the corner because someone is about to die. But there are many other aspects of medicine where you do need to bring your emotions and you do need to be a human and not a robot for sure. Probably a lot more situations like that than where it's good to be a robot. But for me, a lot of the time, like the death, the death is actually interesting because it's, you know, the way the human body works in health and in disease, it's fascinating. And that's all you learn about in medical school. And I loved learning all those details. Like what exactly goes wrong to make people sick or what goes wrong to make them die is very interesting. And, um, and a lot of times that's still the case when you're in those situations. But often, let's say if the CPR, if we give up, the CPR has failed and then the family comes in and then the emotion often just hit, hits you like a big wave, like a ton of bricks. And you realize, you know, the family comes in, they're crying. Of course, it's one of the worst days of their life. And then it's sort of almost like a slap in the face, just like a reminder that this this was a person who had a life and people loved them and now they're and now they're dead and a lot of people's lives will never be the same. So it's kind of amazing. You get wow. slapped in the I, face. I, a lot. I, I am I'm crying inside of me while you are describing this. It's so hard moving to understand this. It is very moving, and it's you know a lot of times I'm the one who has to go out to the family and say I'm sorry. We tried everything. I'm very sorry for your loss. And so, you know, that's not easy. That never gets easy, to be honest. Is there is uh, a way to deliver the bad news? <laughs> well, so actually delivering bad news is a whole uh, kind of an art and a science in itself. And um, so in medical school, we actually had a training session where we learned to deliver bad news. So there was like an actor, actually it was an actress, and she was playing a patient and we had to tell her that the biopsy results came back and she had breast cancer. And so they teach you a bunch of techniques, really. Um, for instance, they say, you know, you should tell them the news right away. You don't want to use confusing medical terms like you, you don't want to tell her 
you have an adenocarcinoma, you want to tell her she has cancer because no one knows what an adenocarcinoma is. So you don't want to hide behind medical terms like that. Uh, you want to have tissues nearby and offer them if needed. You know, you want to um, sometimes, if appropriate, maybe you could touch the patient once between the shoulder and the elbow on the side of their arm. You don't want to touch them too much, but you want to be comforting. And um, what else is there? You know, it would be like ideally they would have another family member or friend there with them to drive them home. You want to ask them, do you understand what cancer is? Do you, you know, a lot of people know the word, but have no idea what it means. Well, I, 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 I understand a bit. The cancer is a bit more light work for you than just he's dead. Your friend. Guy. <laughs> right. Well, bad, bad news is bad news. I guess, uh, you know, depending there's different flavors of bad news, but, um, I think a lot of the similar things go into that as do, let's say, delivering a cancer diagnosis. And sometimes w one good thing or one really useful technique is to have lines like, I wish I had better news or I'm, I'm really sorry. We like, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss is another line. Having lines like that, you know, it feels like you're being heartless or robotic or you're reading from a script um, in the face of very distraught people, but it actually helps because it's hard to know what to say in the situations. You know, like when people in real life, in normal life, when someone passes away or you hear your friend has a family member that passed away, a lot of people just don't know what to say. A lot of times it's irrelevant what to say is they just, you need to just pass the news and shut up. So if you say it in a robotic way, maybe that's the, that's the right. Way right. Exactly. Well, that's true too. You want to get out of the way. You don't want to talk too much, but you don't want to talk too little. You don't want to show too much emotion, but you don't want to be emotionless. So you kind of have to find that again, the balance. And um, a lot of times you reverse engineer the situation. If you see them uh, start crying and punching the walls and all this stuff, like, okay, don't talk. <laughs> You're like, or if you... Yeah, get out yeah. of the way because this is between them and their family member and you have almost nothing to do with it. So you have to realize that you're, you're, while your role in that moment is very important, in the larger story, you are completely irrelevant. Um, so it's... It's hard, it, and it you can get better at it. That's also something that surprised me is with practice, you actually can get better at delivering that news to people. So your personal uh, relationship with death, is it improved? Do you don't care about death? Are you excited about death? You know, I think it's didn't change it at all. I think I'm still, when I probably look at my own death, I'm still a human just like everybody else. And I don't think seeing other people die uh, really changes it. You know, I'd like to live as long as I can, as long as I'm, you know, healthy and not, uh, you know, totally debilitated and in pain. And I think that's what most people would say who have never uh, experience death like a doctor does. Though it's interesting, some studies show that doctors at the end of life, doctors are less interested in heroic measures like CPR and aggressive therapies uh, than the average person, the average non-medical person, because we have a better sense of that often they don't work and they prolong suffering. So a lot of studies do show that doctors are more willing to avoid uh, those aggressive treatments at the end of life. Um, so that might be the case, but 
you know, I still have some habits that aren't great. Um, my diet's not perfect. I don't get enough exercise. So you'd think after seeing so many heart attacks and strokes and other things, you'd think I'd have the perfect diet, the perfect exercise regimen. But of course, I don't. And most doctors don't either. <laughs> yes, you do think that the doctor should be perfect on his diet and perfect on his exercise. <laughs> right. But I think that you misunderstand what doctors do all day and that we're just human like other people have our weaknesses. Um, so I'm just, we're just like everyone else. Um, there is, what is your advice for young people uh, going into maybe having a career uh, on the doctor's aspect, like uh, what they should do? Should we just choose to go to the best university out there? Should they just start uh, maybe an internship to see if they like it? Like, What is some advice that you give to aspiring doctors? Well, I would still, despite ChatGPT, let's say one day taking my job, I still would uh, highly recommend the medical field because I think it's one of the greatest jobs on earth. And I love it. And also, I would say you, there's so much you can do with it. You know, even if ChatGPT does take our jobs, you know, uh, you can, a lot of doctors go into the business side of things, the basic research side of things. Uh, a lot of doctors go into politics uh, and shaping national policy. A lot of doctors write. I'm a writer. I wrote a book, working on another one. But, um, you and know, we'll have a link of the book in the description, by the way, guys, if you want to buy it. Um, you see so many interesting things as a doctor, like I was talking about that I, for me, I couldn't help but write about it because you, you get so many interesting insights into life and the body and, and the, you know, why we do the things that we do and live the way we live. But I would say it's good to probably experience what a doctor does all day. I, I think that's really useful. Like if you know a doctor, you can shadow them, you know, just follow them around for a day to really see what the daily life is like. I think a lot of people don't know. I didn't really know until I was already a medical student what doctors do all day. I thought I wanted to be a surgeon, actually, until my third year of medical school, I did my surgery rotation and actually followed around surgeons uh, every day for six weeks and realized I definitely did not want to be a surgeon. Uh, so it's very good to, to see the nuts and bolts of kind of the daily job as a doctor. So I think that's, that's always a good idea. It's crazy to have a 10 year of education and to do something. I was like, after the end of the, oh, maybe I didn't want to become a doctor. I just wanted to become a nurse or I just wanted to do it. So yeah, I think testing the waters before. So this is what your advice to test the waters before. Yeah. Test the waters before and see, see what it's really like. You know, don't watch ER or some show that probably doesn't give you a good representation, but rather see, see it with your own eyes is probably the best idea. So I want to do one small debate with you. I am, I, again, guys, I want to emphasize that I don't think I'm qualified to do these debates, but, but uh, I, I think it will be fun. So I'm coming from a 
point of uh, of perspective that I, I just want to learn and forget, forgive me if I'm stupid in the small debate that we're going to do here. So the topic is, can you become a doctor without going to university in 2023? So which position uh, you want to take? <laughs> well, I, I would say there's a difference between having the knowledge of a doctor and actually getting hired by a hospital, let's say, because you probably won't get hired without a medical degree, which doesn't mean you can't know a lot and maybe know as much as a doctor. So that's, uh, that, um, I think th where I, the, the reason that I, I do, I, I bring this debate up because if we debate, and we agree that one uh, doctor that didn't went to university that can become as equal of a good doctor, that one person that went to university in 2023, then it's the absolute proof that universities are not needed in our society. And do you mean, because in the US, right, you do regular university first and get a bachelor's degree, and then you go to medical school to get your medical degree. So do you mean medical school too, or do you mean just like the bachelor's degree before medical school? Well, to be honest, I didn't know that there's a hierarchy as well. So I didn't know all the stuff that you meant. So I don't know what I mean. <laughs> In most parts of the world, actually, you go right from high school and then you do sort of a, a longer medical school, like six years of medical school with no undergraduate uh, university degree or bachelor's degree. But in the U.S., you'd first do four years of college. So I, like I got a degree in mathematics and philosophy before I ever started medical school. Interesting. So do you think that uh, one person can become equally as good of a doctor without going to any university? And we're not talking about for him to get a license to become a doctor, to get hired. Like maybe... Uh, it's like, do you, you in 2023, do you think this is possible? I think it is possible, but I think it would be very difficult. Um, but I definitely think it's possible. At least all of the book learning part of it, I think um, you can, you could learn as much as a doctor. The thing about it is when you go to medical school, you learn so much that you eventually forget and don't use in your daily life. Like I learned so much in medical school about aspects of the human body or medications that I never use ever and probably never will. Like when you asked me how long the small intestines takes to digest and move food through it, I definitely learned that, but I don't remember because I've never, it's never been an important number in my daily job. Um, I know the general number and that's good enough. So, so there's so much that we learn and then forget. So the really important stuff that you have to know that you cannot forget, I think someone could learn from uh from let's say online or you know youtube lectures or just reading textbooks on their own so two points one is i'm glad i learned all those details even though i don't need them for my daily job because i just find all of it very interesting and the other point is a lot of being a doctor is uh, a lot of what you the, some of the most important stuff that you learn is being at the side of the patient's bed with an, another more experienced doctor who's showing you the different signs or the different, you know, you watch them, how they ask the patient questions, how they respond to the answers, how they act like a detective and ask about certain things. 
And that is almost more valuable in some ways than the textbook information or even like how they break bad news uh, to people, whether it's uh, of a death or a bad diagnosis. Um, watching how others do it is super important. And also sometimes they do it very poorly and medical students recognize that and think to themselves, I'm never going to do it that way. So you're learning by bad examples and by good examples. Um, and that would be very hard to get for someone who is not going through a traditional um, medical education. And one other thing is like to know what when lungs sound abnormal through a stethoscope or to know when even the, the color of a patient's skin is abnormal, um, you have to look at hundreds and hundreds of patients and like maybe thousands and listen to normal lungs hundreds and hundreds of times and abnormal. It, it takes so much really practice. And again and again, you know, seeing a rash in 20 different kinds of that same rash, everything's a little bit different. No two rashes are ever the same. So it just takes so much like a, a brute force of experience and listening to the lungs of 500 patients before you're very confident in what you're hearing. And that's another thing that it would be very hard to uh, replicate outside the usual medical education. Um, uh, did I understood correctly that you said maybe it's even better to not go to the university and learn it yourself because you are going to be intrinsically motivated to learn everything. It's not going to be forced at you. Did I hear correctly? <laughs> I, don't think I, I, don't, I don't think I said that, but there's definitely a lot of doctors who, you know, were knew they were going to be a doctor when they were a kid and went to high school knowing and college and right to medical school and um, don't have a, a very strong enthusiasm. And, you know, some of those still make great doctors. Maybe some make less good doctors. Um, there's plenty of bad doctors out there. You know, half of all doctors are below average. Uh, half are above average, half are below. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> oh, a very clever way to say it. <laughs> so um, it's hard to know. Polite. <laughs> but, you know, being a good... Being, uh, being smart, having good reasoning being personable, knowing how to talk to people and, um, you know, human to human interaction is a big part of it. And so I think there's a lot of factors that can go into it that are not, um, can't always be taught though. Some things can be taught actually. So basically, okay. You are not saying directly the, uh, what I'm saying, but isn't this the myth that when you are, when the learning is forced upon you, like fire the theory and all this stuff, when you learn it by yourself with reading books and all this stuff might be a, a more intrinsically an interesting, a more joyful way to, to learn these things. Am I wrong here? Yeah, no, I think it, it could be more enjoyable for sure. A lot of aspects of medical school are not enjoyable and many people do not have fond memories of it. Um, I, I think it depends on the person. Yeah, I mean, having a, a big enthusiasm is always good um, and reading, but I, I do think you could read every text, every medical textbook ever written and have a very good uh, textbook understanding of medicine. But then when you're face to face with the patient and have to interact with them either as a human or interact with their body, push on their abdomen to figure out why it hurts, um, that's stuff that you really can't learn any other way than by pushing on the abdomen, let's say, of hundreds and hundreds of people and just building up that experience. Okay. So let me touch on the second point that you said. So you said it's important, maybe it could be done to learn all the textbooks in theory and all this stuff, but you said the experience part's a lot more harder to be done when you are not going to the university. But 
as a person that is challenging, let's say the conventional wisdom and all the stuff that I want to th do things my way or the faster way or cooler way than the traditional way. Like if I go to one, uh, private hospital or whatever, and I say, guys, I will work here for free for two, three years. And I will just, the only thing that I want is to be ghosting the doctor, like giving advice and maybe I will be helping with all this, this stuff. As when I did that for YouTubers, like they all are down to give me free, whatever advice when I'm working for free and all this stuff. And it's like, instead of paying the university so much money, you just work for free, you pay your rent and all this stuff. And maybe you get the same or maybe better education than just being one of a hundred students. You are one in one. So uh, what are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do think actually, if you could follow around, let's say a doctor for a few years, um, I think you could learn most of, of what they, you know, you could probably be a pretty good doctor. Um, but I guess that I'm, I'm always a little hesitant because there's always those times where it's, it's a rare disease that you've never seen before, but you read about in medical school and you sometimes recognize it or something just seems off. Something seems a little different. And so you do more testing and find out your initial intuition was wrong. I guess, I guess there's no reason you couldn't do that after following a doctor around for several years. Um, but I guess I, I do wonder about that. I do think there need to be some standards in education. You know, in the early 20th century in the U.S., there was no standards for medical school. And anyone could say, I'm, you know, this is a medical school and now you're a doctor, here's your degree. And then and in the early part of the century, there was a big move to sort of standardize or at least make a standard so that, you know, things could be held to a higher quality. Did that always result in better care? Probably not always. There probably were a lot of people uh, who, were, who were shut out. Um, because they didn't meet the standards, but probably were doing things well. There's always that downside. But are you becoming a doctor, Phidias? Are you doing this training? <laughs> no, but uh, I'm interested in every topic. So maybe in the future, who knows? But the, the, I think the, the topic that we're touching is, is very interesting because probably, like, we've been stupid here. Um, I see the economy uh, shifting to a review-based uh, economy, like let's say when you get to the Uber, it's like a five-star uh, driver and like there is a four-star, he gets paid a bit more the five-star and you know from before if he is good. And it's like the, actually if he has a driving license, it becomes a bit more irrelevant if he's a five-star, if he is... Uh, so so I'm, I'm just thinking that uh, and pro uh, people... Uh, are like don't give as much of a fact that how many degrees you have in a PhD as how much results you gave in the past. So I think it could be the case that uh, it won't be that much necessary for a person. Is that this is the craziest example? If if you if you can become a doctor without giving a degree, you can become anything without be without a degree. So I'm just uh, I just see some possibilities there, and I think it's interesting, and I find it very interesting to hear speak these thoughts with actual people that start jobs to do this. So <laughs> right. Well, I I think. Some more review, yeah, review kind of number of stars is always a good thing. I do think sometimes 
you get into a little trouble when it comes to healthcare because people can be upset with healthcare for a variety of reasons, and it's not always the quality of their provider. I talked earlier about how frustrating it is to be a patient in general. Um, and sometimes, you know, you could be a very good doctor who just doesn't make any eye contact, let's say, but your diagnoses are always 100% right. But you don't make good eye contact or you're, um, you know, you're rude, let's say, you're going to get you're going to get bad stars. I mean, as you should, because being personable is part of the job. But there's so many aspects that can make people unsatisfied with their care that um, I think it can be hard to rely on that. That Again, I'm probably biased and see a review. You know, I wouldn't want people giving me stars um, after seeing me in the ER, especially after I've told them I'm not totally sure what their rash is, because then they'll give me very few stars. Yeah, but, and, and I think that's, that's interesting because you're mentioning also your diagnosing all this stuff will not, they cannot judge if you are right immediately because on an Uber ride, you can judge, uh, that you are right, like instantly because oh, that was a good driver and no problem, but this is a bit more long-term. If you, the treatment that he gives me, he fixed the thing. So yeah, maybe, but. Right. That's complicated too. And I, I think there's so much miscommunication also people, you know, before I discharge people from the ER and send them home, I talk with them. I explain the diagnosis. I explain why I think that I explain what they should do, uh, what they should take, what medicines, and they should come back if this or that happens. Um, and I think if you 10 minutes later asked all those people, what did the doctor tell you? they would remember very little of it or they would remember it incorrectly. And that's not because they're stupid or anything. I mean, I, like I say so much information, I, I try to print it out in their paperwork too. So, so it's there, but I just think so much gets lost um, in that communication. What do you want to leave behind in this world? Um, well, I have two children, so I would say, um, them and a good life for them and sharing some of my wisdom with them. But besides that, um, I guess, you know, I often think, I think about the distant past a lot, like we were talking about earlier with nutrition and the ancient world. And I think I reflexively also think about the distant future and how none of us will be remembered except the most extraordinary individuals eventually like my kids, their kids, a few generations back or a few generations hence, I'll be not remembered at all by anyone. So I guess I accept that. You know, if, if I wrote a book, I wrote some articles, is anyone going to be reading those in a hundred years? I really doubt it, but it would be great if they did. Um, but I think I'm okay knowing that whatever I do leave behind eventually will be totally forgotten. I guess that's okay. I mean, that's the fate of every human anyway. Thank you for your time. I love you. And thank you guys for listening to this podcast. Consider to share this with your friends if you enjoy it or if you have other doctor friends that they want to become doctors and all this stuff. And buy uh, Jonathan's book as well. So <laughs> thank you guys for watching. We love you. Bye-bye.